After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your co-host, Becky Shrimpton, and with me, once again, is Ms. Danielle Ayao. Hey, Danielle. How's it going, Becky? Good, good. How are you? Good. Where's Cam? Uh, Cam is at the BAFTAs right now, oh getting God. dissed by people on the red carpet because that's what happens to him. But it's wonderful. I mean, he's just so charming and so lovely. Well, in the interim, you have me, which is equally great. For which I'm incredibly grateful for. And you're always here for the fun movies. I, I know. Mean, we're always doing ones that are like a little bit gross or a little bit weird. Or a little or, bit kooky, yeah. A little bit kooky. And or have here, sex in it. <laughs> so much sex. Yeah. And you're here for one that doesn't have sex, but has a whole bunch of weird, wacky, wonderful violence. Uh, I'm going to bring our guest on right away. Uh, Michael Yari Davidson is with us today. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yes, I got the middle name right, yes? That's correct. Perfect, perfect. Because yeah, on the IMDb, you're going to want to look this guy up because his IMDb and his listings of the movies he have, has done are pretty impressive, including Supergrid. And I talked to Lowell Dean about the, the release of that. You were the DOP on that. How was that for you? That movie looks great. It was a lot of fun. It was uh, quite challenging to pull it off, but um, we had worked together on another Wolf Cop where I was the A camera operator and the second unit DP. So we seemed to build this working relationship. And uh, yeah, I got a call to do Supergrid, so it was a lot of fun. So he was like, yeah, come on out to the middle of Saskatchewan. It's going to be great. We're all good people. I said, I'm in. When, when do you need me there? That was a Thursday, and I was there on the Tuesday for eight weeks. So wow. it was now, a lot of fun. That shoot is bananas because, I mean, you've got cars, you've got guns, you've got motorcycles, you've got zombies, you've got everything going on at once. How did you figure out how you were going to shoot all that? Well, we did four weeks of prep, which that's generally where, in my uh, belief, uh, that's when a movie is actually made, when you get to sit down with the director and the production designer and the whole, bring the whole team together. And you make all those decisions before you even go to camera. So when you get there, you're actually just pushing the button and rolling the camera and, and getting the best performances and hoping that all the practical effects work. And uh, yeah, that's how we got it done. That's amazing. So uh, out of your back catalog, which is extensive, what have been kind of your favorite things that you've been able to work on? Hmm, that's a tough one. Uh, I was the uh, B camera operator, second unit DP on The Void, which was a lot of fun. You know, I shot uh, a bucket list item for me was I was a big fan of Alice in Chains uh, growing up. And so I got to shoot their one of their music videos. So that was a lot of fun. So I jumped back and forth between the music for video world and uh, feature films, yeah. Now I'm noticing a trend here uh, when it comes to genre and possibly some sort of heavy metal connection. Um, perhaps- That's uh, Satan, Satan, that's, that's <laughs> Satan. the connection. Of course, yes. Uh, so of course you brought us a movie today that has a lot to do with uh, the darker elements of the world. Um, what movie did you bring for us today? It's called uh, Jack Brooks Monster Slayer. It's from 2007. Uh, it was shot in Ottawa. My my old friend John Ainsley wrote it, and um, it's it's a lot of fun. It's pretty wacky. It's um, the 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 legend goes that there was a, a demon that uh, was uh, a group of men killed a demon and took the heart of this creature, and it was passed down in this uh, sort of secure box through the ages. And uh, a young man's uncle bought it when he was on his travels, brought it home. And it seemed to possess him and took him over and it was buried in someone's backyard. And uh, our hero, Jack Brooks, uh, unfortunately, um, gets caught up in a mess with it and it's brought back to life and he has to, uh, yeah, 
Slay Monsters. Uh, and it's a really bananas movie. Uh, this one's a little bit harder to find, but I believe you can rent it on iTunes. That's one way you can get it. Um, and I'm assuming that your library will probably have a copy of this, weirdly enough. Yes. It's, uh, it got enough of a play that that's probably a way you're going to be able to do it. Now, you mentioned this was not necessarily your favorite Canadian film, and you brought a few to the table. Which other movies were you considering? Well, I did send in a list, uh, extensive list. Uh, uh, I would start with something like Manborg. Uh, I mentioned, uh, you know, the Astron Six, uh, Steve Kosansky, uh, who directed it. Also, uh, Diary of the Dead, and uh, of course, Cronenberg's as an ex-distance. So uh, those were a few off the top of the list. Yeah. What is it that you love about these kind of genre films that have a lot of special effects and things? Well, it's what actually attracted me what to what I do for a living is. Um, I, as a kid, I tried to figure, it was kind of like magic trick, like how are these things being done without anyone getting harmed? And, and I just had this, this sort of attraction to it. Like, how do you figure out the magic trick and how do, you, how do all those elements come together and make it work and make it look dangerous on screen, but actually everyone gets to go home at the end of the night. So why, of, uh, why was Jack Brooks on your list for this one? I'm a big practical effects guy, not too much into visual effects. Uh, um, it's got lots of slime and tentacles in it as well, so I figured <laughs> out that. it ever. This right? is a very broy movie, <laughs> a very broy movie. Um, and I have to ask uh, right away. So, um, from your point of view, you talked about how you prefer practical effects to CGI, etc. What are the challenges of shooting practical over CGI? Well, uh, with practical effects or stunt work or or anything that's in the real world with us, um, it may not work every time. So. You know, if blood gets on a on a costume, then you're going to do an automatic reset, and that automatic reset may take 15 or 20 minutes to reset it back to be able to do it again. So it's never guaranteed that it's actually going to work. Um, but when it does, there's just something about it that feels, even though you know it's not real, it feels organic, and there's just something about it that that CGI doesn't have. Mm, there's yeah. a tactileness in this, um, and that's something I want to start with as we talk about this. There is so much love in these creature designs and in these monsters. And something I think really that impressed me right off the bat, and you don't often get to see this, is that you have the monster in broad daylight right at the very beginning. And it doesn't look that bad. Like Looks it's, pretty amazing. It's a dude in a rubber suit, but it's not that bad. You can't see the zipper. Um, and Danielle, you had an interesting idea about seeing monsters versus not seeing monsters. Well, the trend that's currently going on with all the horror films that are coming up now is that the ability that you can't see the monster like Bird Box, um, Cloverfield to a certain extent, because you do see it kind of at the end. It's this whole, you're missing a sense, you're missing a sense of your own senses. Sorry, this <laughs> is lack of good, better words right now. But where you don't really see the monster. And one of the ideas for Bird Box of why they couldn't or why they didn't show the monster was because what they did have wasn't, they didn't think it would be scary enough to kill people, to to somehow like hypnotize them to kill people. And so when you're creating these kinds of monsters, you know, what what is the thought process that goes behind your what goes on in your brain and when you're like how do we create something that's scary but not campy, not kitschy and not a knockoff. Hmm. Well, a lot of that a lot goes into that. Uh, I would say that it starts I would always say that it always starts with the mythology of it. What's the back, much like a character, uh, what's the backstory on this thing? And bringing in a concept illustrator at the very beginning to figure out what that backstory and mythology is sort of translates from 
from the concept illustrator to the special makeup effects artist and then to the performer and then how I shoot it and then how it's cut. All those elements come together in order to, you know, maybe it is shown, but maybe it's in shadow or maybe it's only shown for four frames or there's a lot of different ways that it can be done um, doing it practically to make it feel really scary. I'm also curious about uh, the idea of the camp versus the fear factor. And this falls very cl very clearly into the camp factor. And from what I understand, I was reading an interview with the director of this, and he talked about how they decided to make this film because they wanted to make another film later on down the road, and that genre picture, there's always box office for it. There's always a, a need for it. So if you can make your money on this and then like just a little bit more, it takes you closer to being able to make your next film. Um, so when do you decide that you're going to make a film in full camp mode and when do you decide you're going to make a film with like some you're actually genuinely going to terrify people with a horror movie I think you can do either or yeah and, and again I think that comes right at the very beginning in the inception when the director is talking with the writer and that's you know that's a er very early decision which direction you're going to go with it either it is campy or how serious are we going to be with that film and that's an early discussion that all of the creative keys come into the film and ask the director which direction are we headed with this and you know, you got to really nail the tone before you begin to be creative on it because it can steer you in so many different directions. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, I mean, we talked a little bit in, uh, when we were coming up in the elevator together about the coloring of this and that like it's got all those greeny grays. And you said this was shot on film, which is kind of bananas to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, from from what I understand, um, Josh Allen, CSC, uh, was the DP and it was shot on Fujifilm stock. Um yeah, I, I believe a lot of it was done in camera and um, it's just an understanding of color psychology and how to sort of influence the viewer and how they're feeling and that's why you get those different tones in the film. Um, a lot of professional colorists that I work at at the labs when you're doing a film, um, I know we have all this flexibility now shooting raw and shooting in, in log formats. But what the colorists will tell you is the more you can do it in camera and the, the, the better you can make it look in camera, they can just sweeten it and take it over the top. But if they have to bring it all the way there, then you're just pushing pixels around and you're gonna get yourself into trouble. So it's always better to do it in camera and yeah. So how does that affect the way viewers see something? So for example, in the very opening shot, like I said, it's shot in broad daylight and like everything is really bright. There's these saturated yellows and oranges. And then you move into the night shoots in the uh, in the school where like the monsters show up and they're killing everybody and everything's dark greeny grays. What does that do to us as a viewer? Uh, well, again, um, I think when you start in any type of film, you can sit down and look at the color psychology. And I always try to come up with rules for the film. And, you know, a color can can mean different things. Um, a col say blue, for instance, blue can since today is the bluest day of the year. I think I saw somewhere on social media because it's the most depressing day of the year. Interesting. Because it's the middle of winter. Huh. Uh, so, it, you know, blue can be a connotation of sadness or depression but it can also mean like trust and so i think at the beginning of the film if you sit down with the production designer and the art director and sort of come up with these rules and how they're going to be applied to the film that's really how you can how you can lead the audience and and, and their their feelings while they're watching the film well, I'm talking about leading the audience. There's some cheerable moments in here. Then <laughs> that goes along with uh, the camp factor and and the the fun of watching this. That we have those immediate expectations. And one of those is the fact that Robert Englund is in this movie, and he is going 
full Bruce Campbell. He's having the best time ever. And I always feel bad for Robert Eglund because I feel like because he was behind all the Freddy makeup, um, he's always used in cameo roles where it's like just a wink of like, this guy used to play Freddy. Look at him deliver two lines. Isn't that lovely? But here they bring him in and they just let him play. What did you think when you first saw him show up and, and watched him kind of do his stuff? Well, I think it's, you know, it, it's great for him because, uh, you know, he is known for that iconic role of, of uh, being Freddy Krueger. So it's nice to be able to see some range in him and play a character that is sort of like the nutty professor. Uh, it's interesting to have him have this playground to play in and, and not be pigeonholed into the role that we all know him for. He's having the best time. Like, it's just neat to see that sort of that sort of twist and that sort of transformation, especially when it gets into, like, you talked a little bit about the rules of the monster, like how, what what the backstory is, what he, what he goes off of. And as Danielle said, a lot of monsters, we create them as an aspect of humanity or like, what are they preying on in mm -hmm. us? What's the, what's the main focus? And with this one and this whole movie, really, there's a gross out factor that has to do with food and consumption and then regurgitation thereof. Yes. And it's gross. <laughs> it's, it's very gross. So then my question for you guys, so one of the things the, the giant monster does when he, um, when Robert Englund transforms into this big blob-like creature, uh, he has these tentacly things that pump uh, whatever demon fluid, if you will, um, into, into these unsuspecting children, turning them into like zombie people. This is a Bananas Movies, people. Like there's a moment where I'm like, okay, this is almost going on a bit too long and it's a bit too gross. What is the line of like, when you want people to be grossed out, but like not look away? Or do you want people to look away? What's the line for you guys? For me personally? I don't know. No. I'll, I'll give it to you. What's the line? Well, I think there's two, I think there's two lines going on here, right? There is a gross out factor where you're like, oh, that makes me feel uncomfortable. And then there's a gross out factor where I'm like, this is just crass. This looks like, sorry to ruin the film, this looks like a geoduck if you have ever seen a geoduck <laughs> yep. basically going into these unsuspecting, well, adult teens and just pumping them with stuff. It's, it seems crass to me. It doesn't seem like gross out. It just seems crass. I first start by saying I have no line, but there, I guess everyone <laughs> has a line. There's some point when I do have a line and it's more of like a moral or ethical line that mm -hmm. I need to get to. But up until that, if it's just all methicil and latex, like bring it. I'm all about it. Like just... <laughs> Yeah, I'm all about it. Yeah, I want right. the weird stuff. They right? like show me, bring me your weird. Yes, yes I'm totally. One hundred and twenty percent. And I think that's the joy of movies like this is you're just watching. Especially, I mean, I think you used to get it with like Tom Savini, where they just kind of let him go. I mean, all of um, oh, what's the Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez ones that I'm thinking of? Don, uh, Dust Till Dawn. Thank yeah. you. Uh, all of that is just a playground for Tom Savini, right? Um, it's like, oh, look what I can do. And I think you get the funnest movies and the funnest effects and from what I understand this happened a bit on um, Wolf Cop was it was special effects people who were like hey so I can do this thing can we find a way to fit this thing into the movie and it's like you can make someone's head explode that's got a bunch of worms in it done and done um, you talked a little bit Michael about the collaboration process with other artists and I'm assuming that that sort of thing would come in at the very beginning with the scripting phase of like we need a weird effect here how's that going to work yeah, that's yeah. It's it's essentially done at the very beginning, and I think a lot of it has to do with um, the finance that the producer brings to the table, um, and that's kind of the role of a cinematographer is to play that conduit between uh, the producer brings a certain amount of finance and resources to the table, and the director has this vision of what they want. 
And unfortunately, and fortunately, the cinematographer is sort of the conduit between those two elements. And we need to make sure that we're executing the director's vision while bringing it on time, on budget with the resources that's made available to us. So at the beginning, when they have these elements that let, we need this wild effect here, there's only so many ways you can divide. Something has to give when it comes to the financial structure and the, the finances available. So you kind of have to fight your battles. It's like, do we have this great crane shot here or is, does this head explode and we're just handheld, right? So I think I would go for the exploding head personally. We uh, all would, so would Cronenberg, right? As well. Right. So it's a, yeah, it's like put put the put the effort on on screen, um, and I think that's the where the collaborative spirit and that sort of like what's best for the film comes into play at the very beginning when you're uh, in prep, yeah. and especially knowing what kind of movie you're you're going for. I mean, this is a film built for VOD, like it's built for having a bunch of your buddies around, ha- coming over, drinking a bunch of beer, hanging out, and like just cheering. Maybe it's on in the background at a party. It's one of those movies at Halloween, right? And then people can every now and then just look up and go like, sorry, what's going on? Um, and I think there's there is definitely a value for those those crowd-pleasing, everybody-in sort of films. Um, but I'm curious, because you do a lot of... Um, I really enjoy your Twitter feed. We're going to get to how, how people can find that in a minute. Um, and one of the things you do a really good job of is you post all these things for young filmmakers about things they should be paying attention to. And um, why were, are you inspired to do that? And also, what's the best way for directors to communicate with cinematographers? Two very different questions. Okay, starting with my social media, um, I find that... Um, I've been doing this 10 plus years. It can be a very lonely, discouraging road hearing so many no's and, you know, just in the development uh, cycle, you've been attached to a movie for years and it just cannot come together. Um, And just looking at social media in general, I think there's so much negativity in the world. I just try and be that positive light and always keep that, keep it on the positive tip. That's my saying is just put out good vibes into the world and hopefully it's it's going to inspire someone and if I can just be that one little ray of sunshine in someone's career or life when they're struggling they want to make their first film or they want to you know I want to just get to the next step but I don't think I can do it maybe they just read my little micro tweet and hey it changes their day or their career or you know I just want to be that little ray of sunshine in people's lives I think they need that right yeah the other question was what uh, what's the best way for a young director to communicate with a cinematographer? What kind of language do they want to develop? Okay, well, first of all, because we work in such a subjective industry, I always use the analogies of like what color is blue or how long is a piece of string. Everyone is going to have a different answer to it. So typically what I would tell a young director is start with, when I start having this conversation after I've read the script and, and I'm sitting with a director and I've you know been hired for the job, I try to work on give me a stack of five Blu-rays and what does this movie look like? What world? Because you're actually, that's that's one of the sort of touchstones that I go to when I'm done a film. I, I sort of ask the director, did we create this world? Did we create this universe? And it's really important for me to be able to say, yes, we did. We actually created something interesting and unique. Um, so I, my advice to uh, young directors coming up would be, just have you know visual references, like watch different films and be able to show them to your cinematographer or You know, I'm in prep that I can't talk about a film right now that's going to happen later this year. Um, I'm looking at Renaissance paintings for this film, and it's a little wacky that we're going that far back to look at these paintings to inspire this film, but it's, hey, so be it. Um, Or photographers, right? So that's a good place to start is just having this sort of like, 
you come up with a lookbook or, or a, some vibe boards or some mood boards and just sit with your cinematographer and say, this is the type of mood or tone or emotion that I, I want this world to be like. Um, and I guess the next few things that very quickly I'd, I'd recommend is um, learning about color psychology. Again, going back to that and like, what does this color represent in the film? And when you're creating these, these rules at the beginning of the film with the cinematographer, um, you can work with your production designer, same sort of thing. What do, these, what do these colors mean in the film, in the world of the film? And the third thing I would say is um, learn the aesthetics of lenses, of the focal lengths of different lenses, um, because it makes the spectator feel a certain way. Uh, it's simplifying it, but I, I like to look at it where um, short lenses or wide lenses are leaning towards drama. And if you want to make something look, you're going for beauty, you use a longer lens. So it's something telephoto, it just the way it captures a person's face. Um, so you can get the same sort of framing on a person um, by using a wide lens and having the camera very close to them or being on a telephoto lens being far away, but it gives you a totally different feeling on how the how to, the audience watches the film and feels about the film. So that would be my next thing is, is you know, just get a DSLR and play around different focal lengths lenses and you know, take photos of people up close and far away and how does that make you feel? And I think a lot of what cinematography is, is it's really unspoken. It's more about feelings and, and gut feelings and, and your intuition. So that's what I would suggest for a director is just take out a camera and shoot photos of different moods and tones and, and, ha and have some sort of uh, visual references to sit down with the cinematographer and discuss. And see how you do. So if you were working on a movie like Jack Brooks, uh, how would you go about creating kind of the, the world for this? Like what are, the, what are the rules of Jack Brooks? Well, it definitely feels like it's not taking itself too seriously. It feels like a fun sort of 19, I would, you know, in, in my thoughts on the film, um, I would think it feels like a sort of fun 1980s film with that real blue moonlight. And there's certain things that come in place. You know, it's all on a dolly. Um, there's only a little bit of handheld at the beginning of the film. Uh, there's some Dutch angles. Um, when when uh, Professor Crowley actually gets possessed and he's bouncing around the house, it's all Dutch angles that reveals him. So that's sort of like... Sets, Disoriented. Yeah, and sets yeah. the world on this weird angle for the, for the audience to, to watch. Um, and then there is, in fact, a lot of the screams at the end with all that tentacle stuff that's going on in the classroom. There's a lot of like, as I was talking about, like wide, wide angle uh, lenses very close to the subject screaming. And it just gives you this sort of impression. So, you know, those are all kinds of and that cyan green, blue green in the high school gives you that sort of off putting this. Something's not right about this situation. And then obviously it. It's on screen. What's not right about the film by the end? So there's certain. Those are kind of the, the the rules, the parameters that I would set up for it. So then let's get into the actual screenwriting of the film itself. So this is an origin story, and I, the director has also talked about how that may have thrown some people off because the full title of the film is Jack Brooks Monster Slayer. So you expect someone to be slaying monsters almost immediately. He's already in the groove of monster slaying. This is an origin story about how he comes to become a monster slayer. Uh, and Danielle, you were saying that it's like, did they make a sequel? I Well, I was wondering that because he doesn't really get to monster slaying until the very end. And so it's it's building up, but quite, quite divert. It takes a lot of tangents to get there. And so I don't think it really is an origin story. Or, and if it is, I, 
I don't know. I don't see him really as an underdog trying to, you know, come up and tame his rage or not tame his rage, but harness his rage to be a monster slayer. Um, I see that the film is it has those two bookends. Um, it's kind of that reveal at the beginning where you see you don't find out till later that he has that bite mark on his arm and he's putting the sort of these task these tattered rags on his arm to go out and fight this whatever this one eyed thing is uh, out in the in the uh, the forest. Um, I kind of think it's like a redemption story. You know, he's he watches his family be slain by this thing and it's he comes all the way and like you said it's this long meandering road of the story but narratively he's he's redeemed at the end he does everything he has to do in the classroom he tries to save all those people and then maybe it is right it's it, it it's actually revealed that it's him in the hut at the end and it's kind of bookending the film saying that Yes, he is the monster slayer. I think to to talk about it as, as a redemption story actually makes a lot more sense to me. Uh, when I was reading the interviews, it is described as an origin story. And I was like, okay, I can see that. But then, yeah, then I want, you know, my Spider-Man 2 and 3. I want to see mm-hmm. him in action when you get more money because you get more money for the sequel because this took off, right? So then you can have monsters throughout the whole thing. And then you can go full Hellboy. And that's what I'm there for. Um, but I think this is just such a nice little... It's a nice little calling card for the filmmakers, which is what they intended to be like, this is what we can do. Um, And the fact that you didn't have digital, that you had film, they shot it this way to be like, all right, we're going to make our money. We're going to say this. These are the kinds of movies we'd like to make within this way. Maybe not horror, but like we want to make thrillers. We want to make things. We're capable of action. We're capable of shooting in all these different directions. Is there a value in making the film that you don't necessarily want to make first, but like the the money film first that you know is going to sell? to and then moving on to the movie that you really want to make versus making the movie that you really want to make even though you don't have the funds right away mm-hmm. interesting question i i often in speaking with young filmmakers i try to get them to focus filmmaking you i have learned uh how deep is the rabbit hole yeah you literally dedicate your entire life to it it's a calling and it's not something where you make one film, you show it to your mom, yay, I'm a filmmaker, and then it's over. You So I, I try to tell young filmmakers not to focus, like obviously focus on the film that you have financed and that you're making, but try and have that sort of long um, way of thinking uh, that it's your entire career and where does this one piece fit in with something that may happen 10 years from now. So it's it, it, it really is, um, it's not a sprint, it's, it's more of a marathon. So. Yeah, focus on what's right in front of you and try and do the best thing that you can, uh, given the resources that, that, that are available to you. But also, how does that fit into the long game and where it's all a big puzzle piece and it's a chess game? There's an awareness, too, of your own skill level as well. I mean, Kevin Smith knew that he wasn't capable of making Dogma yet. I think he wrote Dogma in between Clerks and Mallrats. And he was like, I want to make this, but I don't have the budget for it. And I don't have the the aptitude as a filmmaker yet. So he waited until he could, you know, get the Dreamcast and, and do it then. And so I think filmmakers to have that awareness that playing the balance of I might not get another chance this might be my my last stand um if I wait it out and I'm I'm strategic about the projects that I'm doing to a point to be able to then make the movie that I want to make that everything is leading for me to make you know my Citizen Kane then you're doing the the, that's the work that's part of the marathon that you're talking about how do you train for the marathon how do you position yourself for the marathon yeah and I guess another thing to talk about would be um this sense of perfection um I, I I see I've seen some filmmakers get caught up in this 
this is my one script and I'm going to hang on to it. You can pry it from my cold, dead hands. And there they are 10 years later and the film's still not made and they haven't done anything. Uh, so again, it's all about positioning and the resources that are available to you. I would say go out and shoot a movie on your cell phone. As long as you have a great script and you have you have great people that, it, that you can bring into the fold, it always it's momentum. I look at filmmaking like being a shark. You always have to be moving forward constantly. And if you're not, that's not good. That's not good for the filmmaker. You always have to be flex, flexing your creative muscle, no matter what budget you have in front of you or, or what uh, resources you have in front of you. Yeah. And and shoot, yeah, shoot to your resources. It's like, okay, we can get a high school set pretty easily. We can get, you know, we can shoot in the middle of the woods and we can get a creepy old house. I mean, it's Toronto. They're everywhere. So, or Ottawa, I suppose, is a shot and they're everywhere there too. Um, yeah, we can totally shoot within that thing and make this look good. And what's Robert Englund doing? Let's give him a call. Um, he apparently uh, signed on to this when he uh, saw their short film, uh, Still Life, which when I was doing Shrimp and Suggested Shorts, when I had more time in those carefree days, uh, is, the doc is the short film, which is pretty great about a dude who like he's seeing everybody turn into mannequins around him it's like you, you don't know if he's on a drug trip or if like something's just weird's happening it's very twilight zony it's a pretty decent little little short film but apparently robert Eglin saw that read the book or read the script and was like okay I, I get this this is meant to be campy fun weird and uh, i can go full bruce campbell and, and then yeah he signed on so i think there's a value too of knowing when you have those resources like robert Eglund, what to do with it don't just squander it i think there's a lot of movies i can think of recently where they've had a cameo of someone huge and they just show up, say two lines, and they go because you only had four hours with them. Figure out how to use them on the day. I think a great example of that is uh, Bradley Cooper with the not the new, but when they redid Wet Hot American Summer, they're like, well, he's a megastar now. They can get him for six hours. How are they going to use him? They used him incredibly wisely. They knew how to do it. So yeah, that's human beings are a resource as well. You get you get your your money star. You get your name on your billboard. How do you use them so that people will actually cheer? And ninety percent of filmmaking is getting people to cheer and feel. I guess we are at favorite moments guys you know what i i really enjoyed his line when he's in the counselor's office and he's saying oh my gosh i have to find it i don't need to relax i just need to not get mad all the time <laughs> because i feel like i i feel like that's something i say all the all the time all the time and i can very much relate to that but i find what i find interesting about his position about anger is that he never needed to, and that's, again, this is part of the genre, but he never needed to get over his rage. He channeled his rage into being the monster slayer. So what do you do when you have too much anger? You go and you be a monster slayer. You don't have to take care of your anger. Wow, that's quite the takeaway. She that does, is my takeaway, she's yeah. She's pretty good at this. That's why she's here. <laughs> How about yourself, Michael? Uh, I would have to, it's a smaller moment, but if you're talking about a favorite moment, I love when Uncle uh, Emmett is eating the dog in the backyard and his nephew comes up behind him and says, Uncle Emmett, are you okay? Are you okay? And he actually eats his nephew's hand. That whole flashback scene is fabulous. I liked that very much. I thought that would have just been like a great short film unto itself because it's kind of a movie within a movie. And yeah, I dug that. It 100%. kind of feels like Gremlins almost. Yes, yes, right? totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But instead I mean, of a mogwai, you have this like black heart inside of this case, right? Yeah. and talk, Well, it is like the black heart's almost a MacGuffin. 
right? Like, it doesn't really matter what it is. It's just, it's going to incite all of the chaos and we're just along for the ride. Sorry, guys. Here's how this rolls. Um, for me, I think the dude who's playing, um, it, not Uncle Emmett, but the Howard David Fox, he, who's a remarkable actor who's been in a ton of stuff, uh, he's playing the the guy whose hand gets bitten off uh, and he's in a, um, a hardware store. And just, like, he has these great little funny moments where, like, he forgets Jack Brooks was even there and he's, like, and, like, when he stands up and there's this like crackly poppy noise all up his back I'm like okay that's a pretty good little gag and his storytelling is so good and he's in the right movie um, and that's something you have to say when you're watching movies like this because you may be getting talent that's not necessarily capable of tone but people who know that the, what movie they're in and they're delivering the hell out of that and he does it so beautifully and I love that whole sequence and I love him I think he's awesome fabulous so Michael how do people find you and your work uh, you can visit me on the web at my site, which is Michael Yari Davidson with uh, it's Yari with a J uh, dot com. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at MJD underscore DOP. Uh, yeah, follow along. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I have weird stuff on my Instagram. I share a lot of uh, my thoughts on filmmaking and try to help people out and point them in the right direction and try and be that light of uh, hope and sunshine in the in the world thank you very much michael how about you danielle what how do people find you you can find my airbrush photos on instagram at danny Ao, or you can go visit my website www.danielleao.com and you can check out my film but you're not black coming out in june 2019 beautiful thank you very much and as per usual you can find me on the twitters at liz shrimpton that's the masculine the shrimpton over there instagram i'm caridia underscore extravaganza i'm in a new podcast out from the globe and mail studios uh, as well as microsoft called ai meets world and you can come hear me talk to people who are way smarter than i am and who are saving the world with technology that's pretty great uh, my co-host on that is Navneet Alang. Uh, my co-host on this one on a more regular basis is Karen Maitland. He will be coming at you back very, very soon. Follow him on at iCram on Instagram um, and also follow his Twitter right now and see all the pictures from London and uh, from LA as he's at the BAFTAs and the Indus Spirit Awards and be very jealous of him. I think that's just about everything. So do you guys want to go get a moose head? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a nod from Michael. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.